great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why do you do this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again with no notes, no questions. I sit down with subjects to learn from them about them. Today, we continue our special series of episodes with the Green Party of Canada leadership candidates. And today we speak with Andrew West. Andrew and I talk about his bid for the leadership of the Green Party of Canada, his vision for Canadians from coast to coast to coast, and also some of the policies that he's passionate about. So here now is cross-border interviews featuring Andrew West. But I start off all my interviews with every politician I speak to with the same question. Where did your sense of duty come from, Andrew? Well, I would often have conversations with my father. And my father was a a strong, strong conservative. I mean, very social and fiscal conservative. And I would often take the counterpoint on many of the issues that he felt so strongly about and uh, I think from that the seed was planted that I started to challenge my upbringing and challenge my own thinking and from there I learned to develop a, a love for politics but the questions actually a sense of duty where did that come from that's a very difficult question to answer and I don't think there was ever a light bulb moment. I think it was just the nature of, of my upbringing. And I think as a young child I was I was challenged a lot both within my family and amongst my friends. So whether that you can whether that's broken down into bullying or whether it's broken down into um, not having anyone necessarily believe in me and the desire to prove people wrong I think that all of those things factor into my sense of duty Uh, I think I don't want to get too much into my upbringing but I've definitely seen probably more wrongs than I hope most people ever see in their lifetime and seeing that and wanting to correct that wanting to correct those wrongs to do the right thing definitely made me the person I am today and gave me the character that I have. So what brought you to the Green Party? Because uh, you, you just mentioned that your father was a more conservative uh, thinker when it came to politics. So was it that you challenged him in that way? So that way it brought you to a more left-leaning centrist party like the Green Party? Or what brought you to the Green Party? The policies brought me to the Green Party. I have always had this strong desire to want to help as many people as possible. That's my goal in my life. And I think that for me, the best way that I can accomplish that is to be elected and pass meaningful legislation on a grand scale. And I started to look at the Green Party when I first decided I wanted to get into politics and I didn't look at it seriously enough because it was at the time, this is going back to 2004, it was at the time still very much a fringe party. So I looked into the other three parties and I just didn't feel like they resonated with me. I didn't feel a connection with any of them and I volunteered with each one to a certain degree. And so I started to seriously look at the Green Party and I looked at their platforms and and found out how strong they were both with the economy and the environment and helping people. And those are issues that have always been important to me. The environment in particular has always been a passion of mine and I've always wanted to do what I can to help the environment. So I looked more seriously into it and then I went to a talk that was given by um, the leader of the Green Party of Ontario, Mike Schreiner, 
on food and water security, which are both very important issues to me. And at the end of the talk, he said that he was looking for candidates for the upcoming election. And it was a minority government, so we didn't know when that might be. And so I started to talk to him afterwards, and um, he put me in touch with someone who put me in touch with the writing association and we we got along we felt like we were like-minded and i shared what my views were and they felt that they could you know we were on the same page and then as it so happens the government fell like within three weeks and i was a candidate <laughs> and for those who don't know that 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 election was the kathleen Wynne versus tim hudak uh, election correct that was the last and uh, before uh, kathleen won win won her majority government in that's Ontario. right and I'm, that's right. At the time, the minority government, um, sorry, the opposition party was the, the NDP with Andrea Horvath, yeah. and she's the one that actually didn't pass the budget. That's right. She didn't approve the budget, but yeah. So the government fell as a result. And then, yeah. yes, correct. And then that Kathleen Wynne got her majority. Now, was that? It sounds like you were more provincially green. Did it? Did you line up federally with the party as well? Because uh, when you look at provincial parties and federal parties, they tend to try to stay similar in their views and their uh, uh, their philosophies. Uh, did the Green Party of Ontario and the Green Party of Canada match up for you and say, "Yeah, I can support the Green Party of Canada as well as the Green Party of Ontario"? Well, I been a candidate for the Green Party of Canada. I was a candidate in 2015, the following year. Um, and yes, I was able to line up with both of them. Having been involved with the party for as long as I have, I can tell you that I really appreciate that the way that the Green Party of Ontario is structured. I think it runs very well. I think the, the leader and the provincial council work well with each other, work well with the members. Uh, it's a very collaborative group and the direction of the party is a good one that I appreciate. So I do think that I, I do like the vision that the Green Party of Ontario has, and I, I think that the Green Party of Canada can share more of that vision. Now, uh, 2019, the election uh, uh, happened in October. Surprising to most people, Elizabeth May announced that her she was going to step down as the leader of the Green Party of Canada. Uh, why put your name forward now? Why, why, why did Andrew West decide this is the time that I need to run because I have the vision for Canada? I didn't choose the timing. It was Elizabeth May who chose the timing. Um, there's definitely, I definitely feel like I can lead the party to an election win in a general election. I know I can. I know that given my experience within the party, having gone through four elections myself, knowing what local candidates need to be successful, I can definitely make sure that we form government. I would certainly like to have improved my French prior to this. So ideally, I would love to have had a bit more time to practice that. But I feel that let me put it this way. I don't want us to keep stalling. I don't want us to keep like having me a wheel run, turning and turning it over in the mud and not going anywhere. And I feel like we're in a bit of a rut. And I know I can help us get out of that rut. So to me, it's a good time in the sense that the sooner we can get the Green Party elected, then the sooner we can pass meaningful legislation to help our people and our planet, most importantly. The the chances of us keeping our our Paris protocol targets is slim as it stands right now. The longer we delay, the worse it gets. So the sooner I can get in there and help the Green Party get elected to start passing those that meaningful legislation, the better. So the question then becomes, how do we get out of that rut? Because we, we saw in the 2019 election, I'm assuming you saw it in the 2015 election, where at the beginning of the election, Canadians want to vote for the Green Party. They want to vote for the Green Party. Under the system we have, it's first past the post, so you know where my question's going here. At the end of the campaign, they vote against a party. They don't want to vote. They want to vote their conscience, but they have to vote strategically in some writings, so they have to go out and vote against a party who might win. How do you connect with voters to keep them in the Green Party tent 
through the entire election and not get them to say a strategic vote, but vote for their conscience, vote for what they want. So I've been able to do this on a, on a smaller level, and this is what I bring to a national level. First, we need to change the narrative. It's not strategic voting. It's fear-based voting. If you look up strategy in a dictionary, it means to have a plan, have a goal. So a true strategy would be to pick the party you want, hopefully that's the Green Party, and stick with that party until the party gets elected. Volunteer, help out, and understand that it might take a, a couple of elections. When I go door to door and I talk to people about this, I highlight a video that I've seen on YouTube which I think is called How to Start a Movement, but I'm not sure. But if you were to search that, you'll probably find it. And it starts with just one person dancing on a hill all by themselves. And they look a little silly until a second person joins them. And then a third person feels comfortable joining them. And then four or five people join. And then all of a sudden, there's a swarm of people who now feel comfortable enough to join this dancing person on a hill. That now you have a movement. That's what we need in the Green Party. So we have to change the narrative that it's not strategic, it's fear-based. Just simply checking on a box to stop another party, that's not a strategy. How we, how we convince people not to do that is difficult. In 2015, I was a candidate, as I said, and I ran in Canada Carleton, and I don't know if you saw news footage of that election of people putting up these illegal signs asking people to vote strategic well that was Kanata Carlton that was my riding we were hit heavily by the lead now campaign telling people to vote for the liberal party and as much as it hurt a lot of people and I hear this going door to door and it was exactly what you said we had so much support in the beginning and near the end they were saying I love you I love Elizabeth May I love the Green Party but I'm voting liberal so we have to be in a position to be that strategic, to be that alternative. That's what we need. And that's what I fear with some of this in this campaign with the current crop of leaders, candidates who are very, very good, amazing people, but a lot want to shift the party further to the left. And I don't necessarily like using left or right terms, but it's a good way to paint a picture. They want to go to the left to, to you know, which I think will just be at election time, more candidates fighting over a smaller piece of pie. If we can be in the center and a true alternative for people who are disenfranchised with the conservatives and disenfranchised with the liberals, then we're putting ourselves to be in a better position to be that party that people say, this is the party I want to vote in to make sure no other party does. Well, and I, and I find your uh, when, you, when you announced your, your speech uh, kind of uh, telling – because you talk about how you want to bring the conservatives into the party. And for those who don't remember, the Green Party was founded by disgruntled progressive conservatives. So yes. originally it was a conservative party, and then it slowly has been moving to the, the left side of the spectrum. So you want to bring it back to its original roots, it sounds like, correct? Well, I certainly don't want... There's a narrative out there, I think, that the I'm trying to push to be socially conservative, and there's can't that's not true at all. I want to be in the center, and I don't want to. I want to attract people who have traditionally voted conservative, who are also very strong environmentalists, people who or conservationists, that's the one I go to most, or, or family farmers. These are people who care strongly about the environment, but often just see their only option being to vote conservative because they feel that's the only fiscally responsible party. And I want to make sure that they know that it's not, that we are a fiscally responsible party. And you're correct, the Green Party has traditionally been in there. And as we've gained in popularity, we have started to to shift a bit to the left. And a lot of those policies that have been created since that time period are very important and they're ones that I endorse completely. I strongly want to eliminate poverty and we have plans to do that with our guaranteed livable income. We have a national pharmacare plan. We want to create 
a green energy grid and electric right rails. All of these things are extremely important to me, and these are all policies that I think need to be in our platform. But when people vote, more often than not, they're considering their wallet. How am I gonna have a job? What taxes am I gonna have to pay? How am I gonna pay for my kid's education? I have senior parents, how am I gonna pay for that? So we have to show that our policies are costed out and paid for. Otherwise, we're gonna turn off a lot of people. And we can turn people towards us if we do show that we're fiscally responsible. And are, is that what you're hearing when you're talking to Canadians from coast to coast to coast is they want something different. They don't want the Green Party to be that uh, one issue party that it's sort of become in the narrative of the Canadian political uh, agenda for environmental issues. You want it to become more of a multi-issue party where people will look at it as more of a relevant party to talk about. Yes, I do. But I also want to make sure, and I'm glad you mentioned that, that we don't lose sight on the fact that we were created to protect the environment. And sometimes that gets lost in the conversation. We're talking about all these other policies, all very important policies, but at our core, we're an environmental policy or party. So. I want to make sure that when people consider the Green Party that they can they know that we have a platform that speaks to everyone that has a position on any aspect of your life that matters to you. But at the core of it is sustainability, the environment. We would never pass a policy that would hurt the environment. And we, in fact, our policies are meant to protect it. Now, COVID-19 has thrown a wrench into campaigning. You're not able to get out coast to coast to coast to talk to Canadians, but you have found alternative ways through Zoom, through virtual chats. So what are you hearing from Canadians? What are you hearing from the membership? What do they want the party to look like? I think that it's divided. Uh, I know that a lot of people come up. A lot of it, it's a it's a go-to point a lot of politicians politicians to say, oh, here's what I'm hearing, and they all agree with me. But the fact of the matter is that I know that there seems to be a bit of a, a division, and, and I'm very, it's very unsettling to me. I get people who I've never heard of before emailing me, telling me that they see my interviews, and they like me, and they agree with me, and they're so grateful that I'm finally discussing these issues because they're concerned about the direction of the party. Again, not to make, it's not that they want to go abandon the policies. I don't think anyone does. It's just they want to make sure that we we remain fiscally responsible. The part that upsets me a little bit is these people who seem to discount wanting people who have voted conservative before into the party. And I've always seen the Green Party as a welcoming party. I used to hear Elizabeth and 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 Mike Schreiner talk about how there's always good ideas. There's no bad idea. That if someone has a good idea, we'll work with them on it. And so I see on social media this narrative that no, you know, we don't want people who have been conservative voting in our party. And I, that's very disheartening. If someone, to me, is a conservationist, they care about our environment, they want what's best for the environment, but they voted, they li- but they live in a very conservative area and they tend to vote a conservative in the past. I still think that person should be welcome in the party. We're not going to attract social conservatives into the party. They're going to see our policies and just not ever vote for the, for the Green Party. They're going to continue to vote for the conservative party or an even further smaller right wing party. But these voters, these are, but these voters that go back and forth between the liberals and conservatives, they're the ones that often set the tone of who wins an election. And those are the ones that I think we need to attract in order to form government. And that should be our goal, forming government. Um, you, you, you talked a little bit beforehand about what the local ridings need in the Green Party of Canada, because as a candidate yourself, you saw what the party was able to give and what the party wasn't able to give. So what is that? What is the thing that uh, under a West leadership would help the local uh, constituents associations and the local candidates in an election? In the past, I felt that, especially with the federal elections, 
the party is focused more on the top down. So we focus more on our leader and the areas around where the leader has been successful. And in a to get the leader elected, you definitely need, definitely need to do that. And so I was in favor of making sure that happened when to get Elizabeth elected in Saanich and here in Ontario to get Mike elected in Guelph. Because once the leader's elected, now they can participate in leaders debates and that's an extremely great way to build the profile of the party. But now that that's happened, we've had two federal elections where we've had Elizabeth be part of the debates and where she's won her seats and it's still been kind of focused on the leader and some of the writings around the leader. And I think that that was a mistake. I think that the leader should be publicly trying to get 338 candidates elected. That should be their job. And there's been so many candidates, myself included, that didn't feel the support of the party when they were running their campaign. And I know federally, with a small party, that's difficult because there's only so many resources to go around. But that can still be achieved just by the messaging that you present. So, for example, as a leader, I would say we have a candidate in blank writing. She has a B.A. in economics. She's worked in the banking sector for 15, 20 years. She would be a minister of finance. You know, really highlight these local candidates. So for me, a West election would be it would be tough to even say it, a West election. An election where I'm leader would be to focus on all these candidates. So I would be the lead voice in what are already amazing voices. So how do you attract those candidates? Because it, you have run uh, traditionally in Ontario. Ontario issues are different from BC, from Alberta, from the Northwest Territories to Nova Scotia. So how are you going to be able to connect with Canadians of all backgrounds in all provinces? Because in a uh, national election, Every province has their own unique issue, so you're going to have to know every issue, and you're going to have to be able to connect with them. And sometimes you might have to piss off some other part of the country because you're going to potentially want to win other seats in certain areas. So how are you going to be able to balance that? Well, that's a challenge that every federal leader faces. Um, and I think that our policies are generally very welcoming across Canada. And I think that a program like creating a national green energy grid or like a national light rail system is welcoming to all parts of the country because it's about connecting Canada. Um, I think that certain regions will need to have certain issues addressed. For example, um, Alberta. I think that Alberta has always been a lost opportunity for the Green Party. I think that it's, it's, I think that there's the impression that we want to ruin all of the jobs in Alberta. And that's just not the case from my perspective. And certainly if I was the leader of the Green Party, that just wouldn't be the case. It would be transitioning to a green energy economy. And so that might mean focusing more on Alberta because that's where those jobs are. I mean, we have to understand that a lot of people who work in the tar sands in Alberta came from different parts of Canada. You know, they traveled to Alberta specifically for those jobs. And we don't want to say, OK, well, we know we uprooted your life for you to come here. And now we take that away from you. I mean, that's just that's unfair to the thousands of people who have, who have done that. So that's an example of having to look regionally and having to, to kind of tailor the messaging to those regions. Traditionally, parties will, uh, during an election, come out with quotas. They will come out and say, we have 30% women running for us. We have 20% minorities running for us. We have 10% LGBT members running for us, candidates running for us. But if you scale down and you look at the writings that those uh, quotas are running in, whether it be women, whether it be minorities, they're traditionally in writings that are not quote-unquote, traditional seats for that party. Um, the Green Party did it in the last election. They came out with the quotes with how many people were running. 
Do you believe that you need to reach a maximum amount of diversity to run in an election? Or do you believe that you need to give each riding the ability to elect a Green Party member so you don't need to worry about quotas and the, the candidates will come to the party? It's a matter of finding a balance. I think if we become a more popular party and show what our policies are about, we are going to attract more people. And I think it's the candidate's responsibility or the riding association's responsibility to to bring in more people. When I was a candidate in Kanata Carleton, I would make it a point to be active in the community between elections and and reach out to groups that the Green Party may not necessarily have a connection with. For me in particular, I, I made a point to really make a connection with the Kanata Muslim Association. And I think I did that and I was able to attract some volunteers to my campaign through the Kanata Muslims Association. We're a grassroots party and one thing that I would actually do that we don't have right now because I've been involved in CAs or EDAs and I know this isn't happening is to actually give the EDAs a bit more of a vetting process to to vet their candidates Um, and so they're able to let the their members know their voting members know that these are what these candidates stand for so we can better let them decide who their candidates are and they can reach out more to people in the community but ultimately if you're going to be a grassroots party you have to let the membership decide so again it's, it's that balance it's trying to bring in more people it's 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 being more welcoming to people making sure that they're able to have a voice making sure they can connect to the local riding association and then giving the writing association that opportunity to pick their candidate. Awesome. Uh, the next part of the interview is my favorite part of the interview. I, I love talking policy with politicians. Just enjoy talking about what they believe in. So uh, hopefully you're willing to chat with about policy for a few minutes here. Sure. Uh, one of the big ones, uh, as we'll get it out of the way now, because we are the Alberta podcast, so I, I want to get it out of the way. We we talked about it. Uh, oil sands, you called them tar sands. Energy, oil and gas sector in Alberta. Um, we have a premier who has been championing the oil and gas sector since he was elected last year. How would you be able to work with a premier who is so adamantly against everything that you potentially believe in when it comes to the environment? Well, it would be very difficult, let's let's be blunt. I mean, you can only work with someone that wants to work with you. And if Jason Kenney decides that he just doesn't want to work with with anyone who opposes his views, then there's only so much that, that you can do in that respect. So what I would do is actually to try to win over the people in Alberta so that they and hopefully that would be reflected in the Green Party vote so actually that can be shared as a mandate to the Premier of Alberta that no these are things that the Green that your citizens in Alberta want as well and I think that that's absolutely possible I mean I was speaking with someone a Green from Alberta to kind of work on to to understand better what the challenges that they face in your province is and one of the things that I think we as Greens need to do is recognize that the work that has gone into the oil sands, it, it's not good for the environment and it should be phased out as fast as possible. But I mean, the work that has been put into the oil sands has created a lot of money for Canada. We have universal health care, which has been paid, has been funded into a, to a large degree from oil and sand industry. So, I mean, I think that acknowledging that their the work that they put into has not been all evil would help getting our messaging across. So as to say, yes, we recognize that the work that you've done, I hope you realize that we can't continue on this path any further. We're hurting our planet. And if you work with us to create these new jobs in the green economy, which by the way is the fastest growing part of the economy then you will be able to 
have your jobs and still be able to contribute to the energy sector in Canada. I have a hard time believing that many people who work in the oil or tar sands, whichever term you prefer to use, grew up believing that they one day wanted to work in an industry where they're going to hurt the environment. You know, they wanted jobs and they wanted good paying jobs so they can take care of their family. So if we're able to show them that there's a way to do that and, and still, you know, there's a way to have those jobs and also be able to help the environment at the same time, I think that's going to go a long way. And if you present such a strong argument, how could Jason Kennedy possibly be respectable when if to deny that? Like, how could he? How could he still say keep face and deny that at the same time? So I would put the challenge on him. Now, now you said uh, you want to transition to a green economy. You know that we're not going to be able to turn off the taps overnight. I, it's on your website. You you mentioned it here in your, the interview so far. What's the timeline yep. though? What 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 is it? What is a reasonable timeline for Andrew? Uh, that's very difficult to say because that would require working with provincial government and, and, and experts on that. I think the timeline, I can safely say the timeline should start immediately. And that would, that would begin with stopping the $6 billion in subsidies that those industries in, in the tar sands receive and start shifting that towards a greener economy. And to be very specific, because I want people to know that I'm, very familiar with this area. Um, specifically, the main argument against green energy is the storage capacity. And people talk, well, we still need the oil and gas industry or the nuclear industry to maintain our baseload power. Well, if we were to work on storage, and, and you hear the argument that solar power doesn't work at night, if we were to create better storage for this green energy, then that would help solve that problem, that base load problem. So that $6 billion that we're currently giving towards the oil and gas industry <laughs> should transition into developing greener tech, greener energy technologies, specifically, in my opinion, storage. But I mean, definitely if people are to come up to me from that field and say, yes, that's correct, but you should also be focusing on different types of, of, uh, of equipment, then that's something that I would definitely look into as well. One of the big things uh, I, I want to talk about when it comes to oil and gas is exploration. Um, is that one area that you you would want the Alberta government and the Canadian government to stop doing exploring for that uh, oil and gas? And yes, I think using that we... Re- go ahead. No, sorry, I, you, you, the, the video connection cut out a little bit, so I interrupted you, Max, and I thought you finished your sentence. Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying that, um, is it is it ex- exploration that you want to stop? And if so, are you also in favor of stopping the shipment of oil from other countries into Canada and relying only on Canadian oil? Well, definitely... I don't think we need to do any more exploration. I think that, um, I mean, I think it was Mark Carney, who's now, who was the governor of the Bank of Canada, now the governor of the, um, the equivalent in the United Kingdom, said that we already have enough oil in barrels above ground right now that we couldn't burn them all and still meet our Paris targets. So, the fact of the matter is I don't think see the, the need to really continue the exploration of oil because there's already enough oil above ground that will last us for, for quite some time and we can't necessarily stop other countries from exploration at this time so I think we do need to set an example that we need to stop our exploration um, and then when it comes down to you know, the second part of your question I would hope that we wouldn't have a need for for importing oil from different countries. I would hope that that transition into green energy happens pretty rapidly, but that would be have to be a bridge when we come to it. I would certainly look for different alternatives uh, prior to having to take that step, including um, well, there's so many other different options that would have to be looked at, but we'd have to cross that road when we get to it. But if we don't start that transition soon, 
and we're just hurting our future generations. One of the big stories that's come out of the Supreme Court of Canada earlier this week was the uh, quashing of the trial of of the Indigenous people against the pipeline that's going through B.C. What's your opinion on this? How 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 do we bring back a country that is so divided right now? Well, first off, I respect our courts. I'm a lawyer. So I respect the court decision. I think that it was uh, the Trudeau liberal government that put us into this position in the first place by buying the pipeline. So that's been done. And it appears it's going to be going ahead. So as a Green Party leader taking us to government, I would make sure that we stopped any further pipeline production. I mean, we just have to stop it. I think that there's still going to be this division in Canada. I mean, it's from my understanding, and I apologize to anyone who I'm, I may be speaking on behalf if I'm getting this incorrect, but it appears that the, the this topic's even divided amongst First Nations, pro-pipeline or pro-not-pipeline. Uh, because, I mean, there's certainly economic benefits for many reserves, but obviously there's, you know, part of the basic principles that First Nations, many First Nations believe in is respecting the environment. So I, they're even being torn over the subject. And I think that the best way to do that is to try to transition to green energy, because from my perspective, it is a win-win. It is a way that we can still have green jobs. It is a way that we can be self-sufficient energy-wise, and it is a way that we can still help our environment. Now, now you mentioned the next topic that I want to talk about, and one topic that's sort of near and dear to my heart. I, I, re, I was, I went to Queen's University. I did a lot of research on the subject to, uh, for my master's. Um, when you talk about indigenous issues, um, that is one issue that can, can, Canada and Canadians have failed upon so miserably for so mm-hmm. long. How do we fix it? How do we bring a people? together to fix the underlying uh, 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 racism that we have towards our indigenous people, but also treat them like human beings because we don't have running water in so many of our First Nations and our reserves right now. So how do we fix that? So I've long been concerned about the fact that so many reserves are under boil water advisories and they just don't have the basic infrastructure that they need just to live healthy lives. Um, the Liberal government has made progress on that. There's a, there is a website that tracks how many reserves and nations have been um, able to receive, have been taken off boil water advisories over a certain amount of time. But I mean, it hasn't been moving fast enough it hasn't been effective enough and the COVID-19 crisis has all but stopped that. So we haven't prepared ourselves. We should have been doing this a long time ago. And now this crisis has come and it's just making things much worse. Um, It's difficult to say what all the answers are and I wish I did. I know that I am someone that leads by examples. Um, I have good friends that are First Nations. I know that I was raised a little differently, and so I had to move past my own prejudices. Um, not not self-imposed prejudice, but prejudice that was thrusted upon me. Um, to start to see people as as people, and and I'm very grateful that I was able to do that because I now have friendships that I will, that I cherish, and I think that that's something that I can bring to Canada, not just the Green Party, but to Canada as as an example of how we move past this prejudice that exists, and. I think that that can appeal to a lot of people because they see a real life example. And, and I know that most, well, I shouldn't say that, I don't want to speak generalities, but um, there's definitely a movement afoot to want to end prejudice. So the appetite is there. 
and I think that highlighting someone like me that's gone through battling their own prejudice like that, I think that that would set the right example. One area that has divided the First Nations communities uh, in Canada is the uh, Indian Act. It is a controversial act that, uh, uh, depending on which First Nations or treaty or chiefs that you're talking to, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. What's your opinion on it? I respect what I have been taught from what First Nations community feel about the Indian Act. So when I started law school, I had the opinion like a lot of people, like, why do we still have this? Why don't why don't we get rid of it? And that's certainly a narrative that is on social media right now. Get rid of the Indian Act. But what I learned in law school from my professors was that the people that – one of the reasons why the Indian Act hasn't been repealed is because many First Nations do not want it to be repealed. And I need to clarify a bit, a bit more. It's not that they necessarily don't want to be repealed. They're saying, well, if you're going to take it away, make sure you have something to replace it, something better. And there never really has been that option. As certain treaties are settled, um, then that certain that takes care of, you know, the the First Nations under those certain treaties. So it's less and less. But we still have First Nations that aren't on any treaties. We still have First Nations that live in urban areas like Winnipeg, for example, in Toronto. And so if you're going to repeal the Indian Act, first off, we can we can rename it. I'm not sure why we haven't renamed it. But if you're going to repeal the Indian Act, you better have something good to replace it with. And if from my understanding, there's never really been something that has been up to the first nation, the, the first nations that are affected by the Indian Act. There's never been anything that they've really been a, a pro- have given their approval for, and I think that that's just a failure on itself right now that we haven't been able to work with first nations on a way that we could just replace it. Um, so that's been my understanding of it. I'm not going to say that it that it should be repealed. I support the people who it is affected by. If it's going to be repealed, it should be so something better. Would it be some? Would it be something that a, a West government would look at under if they were elected to bring communities together to potentially find a solution to replace the Indian Act? Absolutely, you can you can quote me on this. It would be a very it would be one of my top priorities. Uh, one of the other areas that is uh, divided Canadians when it comes to Indigenous issues is the United Nations Declarations of Indigenous Peoples. Um, and it divides us because it's more of a the United Nations trying to force something upon Canadians, as I've spoken to Albertans from northern Alberta, and that's what their opinions are. I, 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 I'm not in the same boat as them, but I'm just quoting them. Um, do you believe that we need to I- implement this uh, declaration? Yes, I do. I can understand. I can appreciate why there has been a hesitant from the government in the past to do so. I'm not saying I agree with the hesitation. I can just say that I understand it. They felt that they would have to be giving up certain uh, rights that um, the current the, the government really is, is under their jurisdiction. Um, but I think, correct me, uh, but those arguments haven't really been too effective so yes um if nothing else it would implementing everything with the undrip i think is how it's pronounced would certainly go a long way to helping reconcile the centuries of prejudice that our first nations have been dealt uh, traditionally, the Green Party has been a urban party. Uh, you see them elected in Guelph, a city. Uh, you see them elected out in Saanich Gulf, in Fredericton, in PEI. They're mostly uh, in provincially in PEI. They're mostly in the cities more than the rural areas. Uh, one area I want to talk to you about is actual rural communities. Uh, from being from Owen Sound, uh, I know it quite well as someone who used to be from the area yeah. as well. <laughs> So I, I have a question. How do we connect with uh, rural communities and get them to believe that while the Green Party might be that scary image that people have been portraying them, they're not. And rural communities need to buy into the Green Party vision of Canada. 
this is right up my platform alley uh, because, as you said, I'm I'm from Owen Sound. In fact, I'm actually in Owen Sound right now. Um, my um, when, when the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic hit, my mother was one of the people who were laid off. So my wife and I we shut our condo in in Ottawa. We we shut down the water and we locked the doors and we came here just to you know make sure that my mother was looked after. And we're still here. Um, and there is an appetite for the Green Party in er, in rural areas. And this is why I talk about targeting these blue greens, people who are traditionally conservationists, people who are family farmers, because they care about the environment, but they want that fiscally responsible option. And Owens, the writing that I'm in right now, which is called Bruce Gray Owen Sound, the Green Party has finished in second place here twice in recent memory, once provincially, once federally. Um, this in, in Kitchener, there's a lot of farm areas in that riding, and it finished in second place in this past election. Uh, we won a seat in Fredericton. There's other areas that have been traditionally is not necessarily as major urban areas that we've done quite well in. When I was researching this uh, fact about a month or so ago, I just happened to see that there was a riding in Alberta that I don't think exists anymore, but the riding was called Wild Rose, and I think it incorporated the Banff area. And two years in a row, federally, the Green Party finished. I think it was in second place there. But look that up to make sure that well, I'm correct on that. Just on that note, the uh, Green Party in the 2014 uh, – 10, sorry, 2010 by-election where Joan Crockett was elected, the former MP, the Conservative MP for Calgary Centre, the Green Party did second. Good. I wasn't aware of that. But exactly, you can see that there's this movement afoot that there is definitely an appetite for the Green Party in urban, or well, in urban, but in rural areas as well. And I think that we need to tap in on that. And for some reason, we just haven't been. So the writing I'm in, as I said, Bruce Crayon Sound, is very similar to the writing that I ran in many times, Kanata Carlton. Kanata Carlton has a strong, um, a large urban center, Kanata, but it also includes all of West Carlton. So you have all these smaller communities like Kinburn and um, Fitzroy Harbor and Constance Bay. And that's uh, very, this, there's a lot of farmland in this area. And I do find that when I start to tell them about the Green Party, that they're interested in it and that they start to consider it. And it only is going to – we're only going to reach out. We're only going to achieve success in rural areas if we reach out to the people who live in the urban areas and tell them how we as a party can benefit their lives. And that takes having stronger EDAs in rural areas – that can be active in between elections and hopefully have a candidate early on that can start meeting and engaging with voters in rural areas to talk about the Green Party and to show them that we're a viable option. And it goes back to having to be fiscally responsible, in my opinion. I keep hammering on that point, but I keep hammering on it because I want us to get elected. We can have all the great policies in the world, but they're not going to mean much if we don't get elected to start implementing them. Otherwise, we leave it up to the liberals to steal our ideas, which they've done in the past, and then ruin them. One of the areas that the rural communities will uh, always have a hesitation when it comes to the liberals or the Green Party is a carbon tax. Uh, when Justin Trudeau implemented the carbon tax, the way that it is implemented today, rural communities were negatively affected more than urban centers due to the fact that rural communities, you have to ship your groceries there. You have to ship everything. You have to go to those urban centers for your doctor's appointment. How do we – first off, my first question before we, I get into my next question is I'm assuming you're in favor of a carbon tax or are you in favor of cap and trade? No, I'm in favor of the former, but I prefer to call it the fee and dividend program that we have in place. Okay. So the program that you have in place, 
how do how do you make it so that way rural communities are not negatively affected when it comes to deliver delivering their uh, goods and services to their communities, but also when rural community members have to go to urban centers and travel further distance when they are charged more when it comes to gasoline, when it comes to clothing, when it comes to uh, food. How do we make things equal for both rural and urban communities? What I like about the fee and dividend program is that it incentivizes people to not use fossil fuels. And that definitely is easier to do in urban areas. And I have given this much thought. And as much as I do support the program, because I think in general across Canada, it will be more effective. um, I acknowledge that it's not going to be as effective for people in rural areas. And I haven't been able to find a way myself, although again, keep in mind, I haven't been, you know, I've only really, I've only been, I'm not someone that developed the policy, but I'm someone that wants to lead this party. And I can tell you that it's something that we need to do a better job of addressing. And I don't have the answer of how to do it. But I can tell you, as someone who's grown up in a rural area and knows that you really just can't take your bicycle into town the way that I can when I live in downtown Ottawa, in downtown Ottawa, I walk everywhere or cycle everywhere or or I'm able to take the bus. But that's just not happening when, you know, right, right now I'm not even in on sound. I'm in a small little part of the country called East Linton, which is about a 15 minute drive from Owen Sound. So people who live in this community have to drive to get groceries. So the fee and dividend program isn't as incentive, it isn't as much of an incentive as it is for people who live in urban areas. So the best thing I can say at this point is that I know as someone who, as a, one of the, I'm not sure if any of the other candidates have ever lived in urban or rural areas, but I grew up in a rural area. I know what the needs of people who live in rural areas are, and I need to know to explain to people that it's on top of my mind and it will be as addressed as best as possible. Because I think when it, when it comes to rural communities, and I, I I'm from a rural community from Ontario, so I, I I'm not speaking generalizing here, but I'm speaking from my past experiences from the kitchen table talks and the family reunions and the street fairs that I used to go to. Rural communities do not want to vote for a politician who they've never met. They want to vote for a politician that they've actually, uh, they think they can go have a beer with. They think they can go have a barbecue with. So when you talk about getting those EDAs up and running, rural communities are the hardest hit when it comes to politicians because you never see a politician unless it's an election. So those, when you're talking about that EDA, I think you're going on the right direction here when it comes to rural communities. Yeah, I agree, and I, I know exactly what it's like. I mean, it's a big deal Like that, um, again, the, the writing that I've run in has been traditionally conservative, Canada Carleton. And, you know, in the past provincial election in 2018, Doug Ford visited, and it was big news because, you know, he, he had been there for the first time, and, and no one really ever comes there. And he's only been there once since, and unfortunately, that was when a tornado hit the with, with the, the area there. Um, so I completely agree, and I know that that's what it's like. In fact, I, I mean, I've always thought how great it would be if there were a politician in my area that actually was able to achieve even something like just like a cabinet minister position, which, you know, for, for the writing that I grew up in, I won't sound, it's just never really happened. So it so is question, very important. Oh, so the, so question has, the question has to be, you are going to be running an election. If you're elected leader, you're going to have to get a seat, potentially, before the next election or during the next election. Um, how do you? How are you going to connect with rural voters, urban voters, while trying to get your seat, but also maintain that there's going to be a strong candidate in each of the ridings across Canada? That's a large task that you're going to be putting upon yourself here. So how are you going to do that? Well, that's, again, a, a similar answer to what I said earlier. I mean, that's the same task that every federal leader 
encounters. But um, you're in a unique position here because you're not an elected official right now, where all the other federal politicians or federal leaders are elected, besides Peter McKay, who's running for his leadership. But you are a non-elected leader who's going to be running a third party a party into an election. So you were going to have to multitask here because if you look at Justin Trudeau's seat of Papineau, traditionally safe liberal writing, wherever Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay decide to run, it's probably going to be a safe liberal, uh, conservative writing. Jagmeet Singh, safe NDP writing. So how do you have to get elected and also get other people elected to form government? Well, I want to say this first. Ideally, you want the leader of the party to be elected in the House of Commons. And because that way they get a higher profile. But that's not the case right now. If I'm elected, when I'm elected as leader of the Green Party, I automatically don't achieve a seat in the House of Commons. And that won't happen until there's a next election. So this is an opportunity to take advantage of that situation and to travel across the country into rural areas and into other urban areas to start to build a name for the Green Party and to show the face, a new face in the party. And But as it goes back to something I said earlier, I don't want to be just the sole face in the party. I want to start having higher profile candidates throughout Canada. So that's also a bit of my answer. It's not just that it's my sole responsibility to try to build up the Green Party in different parts of the can- Canada. And that's where I think we've been disadvantaged because we've relied on one person to do that. For me, the smarter way to do that is to have like a bit of a snowflake effect. I showcase these candidates and then the candidates start to build up more pro- higher profile in these writings. And so my job is to highlight the candidates and show them the work that they're doing and let them do that work. Okay, one last area I want to talk on before we wrap up here is green infrastructure, one of the areas that you are passionate about. We've talked about it a little bit here beforehand. But in in your mind, what does green infrastructure mean? Because when Canadians think of that, they're thinking windmills, they're thinking uh, uh, sun, uh, sun, oh my God, my mother. There you go. Yeah, sun, <laughs> solar panels. So what does green infrastructure mean to Andrew? So definitely it does include green energy. Um, but it also means a retrofitting homes and buildings because one of the best ways that we can avoid using energy is or avoid uh, companies using wasting energy is to or sorry, is one of the ways we can stop using so much energy is to make sure we're not wasting it in the first place, is what I'm trying to say. So having more programs that we've had in the past to retrofit homes is an important step and starting our transition away from the combustible engine well, that's not necessarily infrastructure but that's still an important part of a, of a green economy but making sure also that communities are structured more effectively and I use the example of a riding or a neighborhood in the riding that I've run in which is called Beaverbrook and it was created in the 70s and it was designed to be a self-containing Neighborhood, So you would be able to go to community centers. You'd be able to go to grocery stores all within walking distance. And I ran in a by-election earlier this year in Orleans, and the business association there want want to start developing their main street into something more along those lines. To, to create be more of a liberal city. And I think that that's very important. I don't think we should have design infrastructure around having someone live on one side of the city and work on a different side of the city. We should try to create infrastructure that people can live more and have more accessibility to grocery stores and entertainment in the areas that they live in. So that requires planning transit out a certain way. When I ran in this by-election earlier this year, the liberal candidate wanted to keep areas around these new light rail stations for commercial use. And I said, no, some commercial is good, but you actually need to start planning these areas to have people with low income uh, because people who live in affordable housing often require public transportation. So make it as most accessible as possible. 
So that's what infrastructure is for me. It's not just transitioning to green energy. It's creating more livable cities. One of the areas that you mentioned there, and I'm glad you brought it up because it goes into my next question, is the home retrofit. Uh, Stephen Harper's yes. government introduced that. Uh, they canceled it a few years later because no one was buying into it. So why in- introduce something that no one was buying into again? Well, not. I mean, just because the government introduces something and if people – citizens don't necessarily take advantage of it it doesn't necessarily mean that that program is bad i mean it might just mean it's not being presented as effectively as it should be and it still is a task i understand that for people who are for for people to take and to to use that incentives it's basically built for people who are already decided that they want to retrofit their home and then they can take advantage of it most people if they're just sitting in their house, they may not think, oh, I need to start replacing my windows. I mean, it's it's still a daunting task, especially if you can't afford it. Even with a certain tax credit, there are certain people who just aren't able to afford these, these programs. So, I mean, having the program there, even if it was dormant for, I mean, not necessarily dormant, but not necessarily um, Used squashed. by the majority? Oh, sorry? Used by the majority of Canadians? Yeah, even though it wasn't used by the majority of Canadians, it's still there to be effective for people to use it when they do need it. And and certainly new homes would be able to take advantage of it, new program, new developments that are being built. So I was really uncomfortable when that program was canceled, as were a lot of Greens, because, I mean, there were still people that were taking advantage of it. Well, I can tell you that I'm going through a house renovation right now, and I could be desperately using that retrofit right now. But, Andrew, we we are on the hour mark, and I I give everyone an hour. But before we wrap up, I I lend the microphone over to you. You have two minutes. Pitch yourself to my listeners from coast to coast to coast. We have about 900 and about the last count was 24 subscribers to the show. Pitch yourself of why why they should take out a membership of the Green Party and support you for the campaign. Well, first, I appreciate you having me and I appreciate your listeners for listening. I would just like to say that I am a longtime Green. I didn't just think that I could come in and change the way that the party is going about its business. I came in from the bottom. I got to know people. I got to know other members. I got to know federal council. And I've developed strong connections in the Green Party. I know what this party needs to be elected because I have been there. I'm not coming from the outside and saying, here's what you need to do. I came from the inside and I was on the ground talking to people, experiencing what every other Green candidate was experiencing about what we need to get elected. And that's what I want to do. I'm not going to take this party in one direction or another. I want to keep the party in the center to attract the most voters as possible. I want us to be a welcoming party. I want us to be a party that attracts the people who are going to vote for a winning party. If we truly want to get elected, and I think that that's the goal of the Green Party, is to get elected then we need to attract as many people as possible. And I think I had the vision that brings in the most people possible. So please consider voting for me, Andrew West. And if you are listening and you haven't gotten a membership, please consider doing so. And finally, I know this is a tough time for everyone financially right now, but each Green Party candidate needs to earn $30,000. And that money goes straight towards the party so we can be better prepared for future elections. So what I'm asking people to do is because we all have to do this, pick, if you can donate, say, $500, pick four or five different candidates and donate about $100 each. Because it all goes, you're helping out every one candidate, you're helping us achieve our target, but you're making sure, most importantly, that the Green Party is better prepared, fundraising-wise, to run a very effective election next time around. Andrew, I want to thank you very much for this. Uh, For my listeners, I will link Andrew's website in the show notes, but also a link to donate and join the uh, Green Party of Canada. And uh, I I want to thank you once again, Andrew, for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. And enjoy the rest of your week and enjoy the rest of your summer. And uh, good luck on October. Sorry, people have to sign up before September 3rd, correct? 
Yes, I believe that's the date. Yes, and then voting is starting. Um, it's about ten days before October the fourth, whatever that is. Backtrack it. Okay. But the final on October fourth. Yeah. Okay. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you very much. If you want to join, join before September third. The links are in the show notes, and greatly appreciate it for doing this today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Again, thank you to our guest for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week.